Chapter 2 A man in dark glasses comes to look at the house late on a Saturday. The estate agent had been on the phone that morning, eager to stress to Marjorie that this one was a very interested party, some important type from the city, couldn't have made it any earlier what with work. I know it's unorthodox, he'd repeated apologetically, the buzz of another call being transferred to hold injecting in the conversation at intervals. But would Marjorie mind showing the gentleman around out of office hours, just this once? Marjorie has kept odd hours since her George went, so she agrees. She shuffles around with the radio in on the background, making everything neat, straightens the cushions in the living room, checking for dust over the fireplace until she hears a knock at the door. The man is younger than she'd expected. He smiles demurely and shakes her hand like a perfect gentleman, thanking her for letting him see the place at such short notice, like she's been personally responsible for reuniting him with a treasured possession. He wears sunglasses and doesn't look like he's going to consider taking them off, and his hair glints like scattered sparks as he stands under the hall light. He looks as if he's either a musician of some sort or a sartorially inclined businessman. She shows him around the place, dutifully going through the figures and details that the estate agent expressly told her to mention, installation dates, tax brackets, renovation possibilities. He hums, but with the polite, uninterested sound of someone making noise on the telephone to reassure the other that they're still listening, and she's not really interested in all that stuff anyway, so she stops. Eventually, without really knowing why she does it, she starts talking to the stranger about George. While wandering through the living room, she points out his favorite reading chair near the gas fire, when they take a walk about off the bay doors, onto the patio and garden beyond, she idly tells him about how he'd sit out in the garden, book avidly clutched in hand while she potted around the conservatory. Squinting something fierce with the sun, but determined to enjoy the book, refusing to take off more than a layer of clothing, and sweltering in cotton trousers and waistcoat. Mr. Crowley, Call me Anthony, please had seemed to listen to that. Smiles in all the right places, gives responses where they were due. He seems like a nice man, she thinks, as she walks him through the kitchen. A little distant, but perhaps he's tired from the drive. There's been some real interest in the property, she says, and she looks him over, well-dressed, a deliberately crafted aesthetic that she'd definitely not be able to afford on her pension, and tries not to seem too disapproving. A sale is a sale, after all. A lot of city folk wanting a second home in the countryside, seasonal holidayers mostly. Would that be your sort of interest, mister? Anthony Crowley doesn't answer her. He's looking around with a serious sort of attention at their current room, enacting a respectful silence you find only in museums and art galleries. He runs a hand over the mahogany shelving. He's been most complimentary about the garden and the kitchen and the size of the bedrooms, but she thought he'd appreciate this one. Her George's pride and joy. It's a beautiful library he says, 
There is a sincerity there like the chime of a glass. He takes in the exposed wooden beams overhead, the shelving that curves around the wall and travels into the next room, the bay window and the cushioned window seat that makes a cove to sit in, catches the mid-morning light in the summer months. Are you a collector yourself? She says pleased. None of the other viewers had expressed anything other than a cursory interest, one of them even implying that they'd likely convert it into an office. My George, bless him, was always a one for books, squirrelling them away when he thought I couldn't tell he'd bought another one. Endless Saturdays at car boot sales and church fairs, going through all the boxes. Anthony Crowley's reservedly polite expression opens up with a lost-looking smile that doesn't know how to sit on his face. My one's the same, he says fondly, before he tightens his jaw. He's... He couldn't make it today, but he'd really love this. You two married? she asks, because that's the sort of thing that's okay these days. Marjorie wouldn't have guessed the young man was that way, but she figures you never can really assume. She'd thought Alma and Therese were sisters when they first moved to the village, until George had laughingly corrected her. His face rifles through a series of complicated emotions. He finally picks out a wry, sad expression, like a nostalgia for lost seasons. Might as well be, he says, and she nods. Me and my George ran away and eloped, you know, she says conspiratorially. Oh, it's not much to say now, but in those days it was a right scandal, two unmarried people running off together. But one day George just arrived at the door while my parents were out, his suitcase beside him, told me he'd packed everything up and that there was a train in an hour if we hurried. What did your parents say? the young man asks, appearing genuinely interested. I don't know, she says dismissively. We never spoke again. George's parents came round eventually, but mine... Well, some people's understanding of the world can't be changed. It is as it is. I had George, and I've had a better life with him in it than I ever would have done without. Anthony Crowley nods like he understands. She thinks, looking at him, that maybe he really does. Our sides, he says, unfolding the words like delicate paper, wouldn't approve. Different churches as well, she says sympathetically. He quirks a smile. Something like that. She looks out of the bay window to the shadowed garden outside. It's not dark, the skylight a new bruise, but the days are shortening as they hasten towards winter. It's a shame you couldn't come earlier, she says. It's a little dark now, but the gardens are quite beautiful in the sunlight. I'm sure they are, he replies vaguely, only half paying attention, forming the words as though struggling through the waves of some other sea of thought. His gaze lingers on the shelving, the window seat shrouded in shadows. He puts in an offer the next morning, two times over the asking price, payment in cash. Marjorie had already decided it was best in his hands anyway. She accepts, knowing George would approve.
Aziraphale has never asked Crowley how he'd describe him. Those sorts of questions, he finds, present themselves only in magazines that discuss the relevance of star signs, or have entertaining little quizzes that while away the time asking if you prefer green or blue, or rocks or sticks, and then come along with an arbitrary sign to explain your whole identity. It's an improvement, he supposes, from reading the dregs of a teacup and demolishing the left-handed, but on the whole it's a bit silly. He'd always quietly assumed Crowley's lot had something to do with it. What Crowley's hypothetical answer would have been is dependent on external focus. Depending on the day you caught him, Crowley might grouch at Aziraphale's particular brand of unyielding surety, like a devotedly dogged angelic sales-being. And for his ability to always put on a tone of voice to come across like he was the voice of reason in his most unreasonable moments. If pushed, and if the situation was ever to call for heart-bearing declarations of admiration, Crowley might have begrudgingly voiced his respect for the fact that, when push comes to shove, and there's backs against the wall, when Aziraphale sets himself to something, he is the most bloody-minded bastard Crowley has ever had the fortune of knowing. Aziraphale tells himself he'll get himself out of here, so that's what he's going to do. It is a notably singular challenge. It's lucky that Aziraphale spent those early days poring over every inch of his surroundings, committing it to perfect memory. Unlike Crowley, his body does not have the luxury of coming pre-equipped with being able to see in the dark. He works through every rune that he recalls, mulling them over and over, trying to find a pattern without success. After a while, he resorts to the very human response of trying to batter his way out. The glass is reinforced, too thick to even entertain the most hairline of cracks, but Aziraphale gives it a bloody good go for as long as his body can bear. It's while lying on his back, panting and biting his lips as he feels a snapped ligament realign inside his arm, that he starts thinking about the circle. Circles generally, really. In theory, although it's both incredibly unlikely and strongly discouraged, anyone can draw a circle to summon or contact anyone else. As a modern method of communication, they're laughable now, a relic of the old days of candles and chicken blood, but in the same way that people go scrabbling for the matches when there's a power cut, it's not like they don't work per se. Heaven's switchboard always favoured them, because they're tasseled with just the sort of pomp and circumstance that reminds them of the good old days. Indeed, when Aziraphale was last up there for a performance review, they'd just tabled and voted down a motion to install phone lines, like the other lot. Wi-Fi was a dim and distant marvel. But circles are the old reliable, because they usually work. It's about will, you see, using the right symbols in the right order, shouting very hard down the line and hoping the other side will pick up. Heaven would. Aziraphale isn't going to call heaven. He ignores at his lip as he considers things carefully. It's not like he's short on time. The real stumbling block here is the lack of a conduit. 
His will is as well and good, an above-average one if he was being modest, but there needs to be a channel, a line of gouted-out sand running the rock-pool water back into the tide. His sterile world doesn't exactly have chalk to draw the lines out, and it needs to be the right stuff in order to work. Symbolically weighty. Meaningful. There's not a great deal of things to choose from. There's only one possibility he can think of. He winces in distaste and studies the space where his hands would be held in front of his face. I can call Crowley. He scolds himself for his hesitation, clinging to that boy. I can go home, just this, and I'll be free. Before he can change his mind, he grits his teeth and smashes his fist against the glass. He cries out, the shuddering recoil bounding up his arm, sucking air through his teeth and teetering perilously close to cursing, before he pulls back and does it again, harder, feeling the bones crimp and shatter on impact. Come on, he thinks, or maybe he says out loud, and then he does it again and again and again, until the skin from his knuckles has split open in a bloody smile his mangled hand useless and dripping. He takes shuddering, hitching breaths and sways, dizzy with pain. With a shaking finger from his other hand, whining when he touches the burning flesh, he leans down and starts to daub the white circle carefully onto the glass, following his recollection of the space. It's pitch dark and he can't see what he's drawing, but he's patient and precise and his memory is impeccable. He feels his hand begin to heal up, his knuckles popping back in with a crunch. And now back to square one. Home! Crowley! Again and again he punches his fist into the unyielding glass, his shouts shrinking into whimpers that gargle in his throat. Just a little more, he moans to himself, pulling his fist back. Come on, you can do it. Just get through this and you'll be home. It takes longer than he'd like to draw the circle, the correct runes and verses from the Kabbalah. When he finishes, he lies coiled, cradling his healing hand, willing his body to stop shivering violently. Patterned around him, the blood begins to crust and dry. There should really be something flaming at the corners, tea lights or similar, but Rosalie kindly never moved the burnt wax of his evocation candles from the circumference of his chalk circle, and really, they're just for show. After a long while, Aziraphale manages to get up onto his knees. The pain is softening into a memory. He kneels gingerly in the center of his bloody circle and, clearing his choked-up throat, starts to, very clearly, say the words. When it comes to contacting others through a spiritual plane, it's not about having the right phone number, as it were. You've drawn your telephone with all its parts and transistors, the correct things to make it go, but that's half of it. It's more about saying the words right, the cosmic equivalent of making the dial tone yourself, and being very clear and insistent on your mental picture. Aziraphale thinks of Crowley so hard it hurts, 
and says the words. There is no beam of light, no shudder like an earth tremor, no indication of a connection of any sort. Like searching for a signal in a rural black spot, Aziraphale keeps going, repeating the words over and over and over, praying for something, anything to show he's getting through. He tries Crowley for he doesn't know how long. Could be hours or days or more. Forces himself to think of the demon even though he'd rather go back to punching the wall. He thinks of lazy days in the park, wrapped up against the cold. Of quiet interludes at the Ritz. Crowley's face mellowed by candlelight. The flame shimmering in the reflection of his glasses. Two shoes propped up against the doorway. He says the words until his throat is dry and the sounds are almost incomprehensible as noise. There is nothing, nothing. He can't do anything more, he realizes dully. His instincts, that little unrelenting part of him, tells him that he just needs to be patient, wait a little longer, that the solution will present itself but he's been here a long time. He can't tell exactly, but he feels the burden of it, the crawl of weeks, maybe months, alone in the dark. No one is coming, and there's nothing more he can do. I'm so sorry, my dear, he whispers ashamed to the darkness. Exhaustion seeps through him with the lulling false security of hypothermia. He closes his eyes and allows himself the numbing respite of sleep, even if just for a little while. Crowley sells his property for far too much money, gives his plants away to a keen horticulturalist who he knows from his trips to Otbins, and leaves London. The cottage lies empty. He's waiting for Aziraphale to get back. He never stays in a place for too long. A skimming visit, like a glance around a crowded room, and maybe he's remembered for an ill-suiting smile or for the line of his suit. If he features in the memories of any, it is as background. Humans around him tangle themselves in the knotty threads of their little lives, their short loves, their lingering miseries and Crowley wanders through like someone walking to get somewhere else and comes to know as an old wound the sensation like he's lived too long. In a way, it's a lot like the early days, when the earth was newer, just out of the workshop, a little less used, a little less grubby, whiling and tempting and urging as he pleased, taking pride in his workmanship regularly bumping into his counterpart, doing his own spot of inspiring and thwarting and emboldening. More often than not, they'd find each other eventually. It was always, at least for Crowley, something he looked forward to. They'd introduce themselves with their new names, new roles, sometimes new faces if one of them had been careless, and then, with a surreptitious gesture, a code of their own devising, they'd find a moment to slip away from watching eyes to have a drink. Aziraphale had always been delightfully uptight about the whole thing, looking under his pomposity like a bookish schoolchild being encouraged to skive off. 
His guards came down brick by brick, wine by wine, and Aziraphale would speak more freely, more honestly, more boldly, a little more like the Aziraphale he was coming to know. Amidst the roll of years, a constant. Everywhere Crowley goes, he asks around. Using fractured pockets and dubious networks of religious cults, Wiccan covens and occult men's clubs convinced they tapped into the energies of the universe because they've done a bit of chanting, used some incense that did funny things to the eyes if inhaled, and got overexcited when one of them saw something misshapen in their morning coffee. Crowley gains a reputation. He's always had one, indeed, had prided himself on it, and dedicated many hours to maintaining it. To those in certain circles, he's a serious, well-dressed man with an abundance of secrets. There are sometimes mutterings by the jealous about that prick who wears sunglasses indoors. Who does he think he is, I mean, really? But it's a jealousy tinged with greed and a certain amount of fearful respect. They know that he'll give good money to anyone with information about a particular individual, and people are more than willing to talk for that kind of price, sharing rumour and gossip and guesswork alike with a gimlet-eyed eagerness. And the man who calls himself Mr. A. Crowley will nod and pay and follow up every claim of demonic summoning and angelic visitation with an unrelenting commitment that one day he'll get to the usually cold and dark basement because all the best guides recommend the ambience, and he'll be there. Tapping his foot impatiently, arms folded but unharmed and whole, a relieved look on his face even as he demands to know exactly what Crowley's been dithering about doing for so long. One by one, his channels become emaciated, thin out before drying up, and then he moves on. When he has to, he goes back to his flat of the moment, opulent with pre-selected modern art, and moodily drinks more than he should. He sees in too many mornings thoughts slippery, taking the same ill-advised turnings, looping like an insect bumping at a window. His thoughts grind down to the same grooves, trace the same fears, the same regrets. It occurs to him, a new corridor of thought behind a previously locked door, as he's trying to pour wine into a tumbler and missing the rim by some inches, that he's desperately, embarrassingly lonely. It's a foreign sensation, because a second, smaller thought comes limping after the first to remind him that he hasn't really been lonely since he came to Earth. Not completely. Oh, he'd taken it for granted that those moments outside the still-blazing bookshop, the knowledge that he was on his own in the face of the end of the world, that that was the bona fide, certificated real deal when it came to the state of aloneness. But that abject barrenness is nothing like this. Because Aziraphale, even when they hadn't been friends as such, and more remarkably tolerant enemies, had always been stationed here with him. And even if Aziraphale would have rather dined on his bow tie than admit it, he was in exactly the same rowing boat of existential doubt as Crowley, the same questions leaking in that they stoppered in their own ways. 
In more modern times, when the arrangement had settled down, there didn't seem to be any real need to live too far away from each other, not when they were engaging in the same line of business. They'd submerged themselves in this world, and while Crowley had always been better at it, the point was that this living lark wouldn't have been half as fun if he'd done it alone. He'd never really thought about how much of his love of Earth was tied up with Aziraphale being here as well. He flits from Ireland to Germany to Slovakia to South Korea. When he sees him, he'll be able to tell him of all the places he searched, the weathered miles, and Aziraphale will look at him fondly and place a hand on his arm, secretly touched, and they'll be able to laugh about it. He has to wait a little longer, that's all. Months are swallowed up by years. The shrill crowing of the buzzer sound at the nurse's station. Tasha stands up from her swivel chair, leaving her broken-backed book splayed on the top of the table, and stretches out with a groan, glancing at the clock before the intercom. It's room 12. Probably will be wanting help moving to the bathroom, she thinks. Everything all right, Mr. Rosalie? She says, all lingering traces of tiredness smoothed out from her voice, twisting the wall like to a low dimness. Frederick Rosalie twists and turns jerkily, catching himself in the bed linen. His twitching more pronounced at night... His mouth opens and closes and he keens in frustration, trying to drag the words from an unwilling brain. She can't tell if he's trying to get out of bed or has had a nightmare. She wonders if he remembers himself. The angel. He's muttering now, voice reedy with distress. Oh, I did. I did such a terrible, terrible thing. He's been a resident here since before Tasha started, three years ago now. Lived alone for a long time, she remembers hearing, as long as he could unassisted, until they had to bring him into the hospice. No family, or at least none that he's on speaking terms with. And all that time it's the same loop, coming and going through good days and bad. His hand flounders unsteadily in the darkness, like he's trying to grab something. His arms bony as a baby bird, his skin showing veins like leaves. Mr. Rosalie, there's no need to get all excited, Tasha says, walking over briskly. He's going to pull his IV out if he's not careful, and she doesn't want to be trying to sort all that out at this hour, not when he's like this. The old man's hand grabs hers. It's deceptively strong, but it's not a cruel hold and she waits patiently while his speech struggles through the fog to get to her. I was wrong, he says fervently. I knew, I knew, but I did nothing. It's down there, trapped in the dark. It wanted to go home. I was too frightened, I didn't. His eyes are heavy with welled-up tears. The milky film of a cataract over his left eye makes his vision blurry, but he stares right at her. It's the most she's ever heard him speak. It's okay, Mr. Rosalie, she says softly, trying to comfort the crying, shivering man. 
She pulls his blanket further up, settles him back down, allows him to keep a hold of her hand as she writes the empty glass he's disturbed with his movements. The photo frame with a younger him giving a little girl with a ponytail a piggyback. Do you think he'll forgive me? He whispers hoarsely. His question childlike, his grip spasming with fear. For such a weakness against one of his own? He will. I'm sure he will, Tasha says firmly. That seems to have been the right answer, for his breathing begins to slow, his body easing out its tension. He stares in the corner of the room at visions she cannot comprehend. Have you ever seen one, Natasha? He mumbles weakly. There's the limping ghost of a smile on his creased face. They look like us, but oh, their wings, their wings. It's the last thing he says. His breathing slows to the soft rise and fall of an untroubled sleep, and then it stops entirely. If he goes above or below, it is not the business of others to know. Aziraphale is nudged suddenly by the itching sensation that something is watching him. He blinks and sluggishly turns his head from where he's propped himself up against the glass walls. He tries to speak, but at first it's a hoarse wheeze that scrapes the side of his throat, drags itself out as a grating cough inside. Who's there? He manages to croak, the sound of his own voice unreal to him after so long, peering into the unrelenting darkness. A little hope in him fumbles with the matches and thinks, maybe, maybe, maybe. There is a shape, haloed in a black that shows no stars. Two holes that would hold eyes catch his gaze. You've looked better, sword bearer. Fear submerges him in a cold wave, replaced by something that is a sad but accepting relief. Azrael, he breathes out, and no matter how much he does not have the ability, his muscles wasting away, atrophying in this prison, he will not face this sitting. He staggers painfully to standing. Have you... he starts cautiously. Have you come for... He hadn't wanted to go, not yet, but it would be better than this, a nothingness compared to this unending, unendurable mockery of living. I came for the human, Death says with the rumble of a motorway overpass, the pile-up of a traffic accident. He regards Aziraphale with an unreadable expression, and Aziraphale wonders how he must look. He wonders how long it's been. He had some interesting things to say before the end. I wished to see if the rumor was true. He levels a stony look at the angel trapped in glass, the tremor in his legs from the effort of standing. No one is coming, sword-bearer. Aziraphale doesn't respond for a moment. The words drip onto him like a spillage, like the slow realization of a paper cut. But, 
He begins to open his mouth, thinking that, no, that's not true, that can't be, someone must find him, surely. The estate and this house will fall into ruin and disrepair, as do all things. Death pronounces without emotion, like he's reading of percentages in the stock exchange. You will languish here, forgotten as the names of the stars. But, but you could set me free, Aziraphale insists wildly. The struck match inside him surges into a real flame and he wants, he wants to live, he wants to get out of here, he wants to see Crowley again. You have the power, or you could, I don't know, tell them where I am. Heaven, anyone, they could get me out. Even heaven, he thinks. He'd take the punishments of heaven, the blistering agony of divine mercy, over this. Death directs a skeletal hand lazily at the grounds, like he's pointing out a mildly interesting plant. Two of the runes spark up like bush fire, illuminated in momentary flame. These are your shackles, he says. A luckless mistake. You cannot be found by any who search because to the universe you are not here. You are a misspelled word, a dropped digit on a page of creation. You are a nowhere being and you will never be found. You could let me out! Aziraphale cries insistent. He's using one hand against the glass to steady himself, to meet the awful vacant gaze that promises nothing but more of this. It is not my job. Sod your job, Aziraphale says heatedly. You could let me out or you end this. This no life, this nothingness, you have the power above all others, and you know it. It is true, Death replies idly, and his eyes burn like the heart of a forge. I do not wish it, then. Because of... Aziraphale breathes in a furious breath, a brittle coal that douses the flame at the centre of him, permits something darker angrier to bloom in its stead. This is because of the apocalypse, isn't it? You lost, and because you lost, you won't. You chose your side, sword-bearer. You stood with the Antichrist and the Snake of Eden. Death does not smile in the way most would understand it, but his mouth bends into a cruel curve. You should know that he is not searching for you. He grieved and then he moved on like the change of seasons. You have been forgotten. Aziraphale pulls himself up, straightening his back, tugging his shirt to try and uncrumple it. He is tired, so, so tired of it all, and his voice is a weak, thready gasp, but he looks into those unforgiving eyes without flinching, his back unbent, 
his head held high. You are a liar, he says carefully and venomously. His lips are chapped, and his words come out a vicious snake-like hiss. You were bested by an eleven-year-old with more sense than any of us. Should the next battle come, I would stand where I stood again, and I would try and drive my sword through your treacherous non-existent heart before the end came. So I would ask you right now to do me the most gracious favor and fuck off. He's shivering with fury, but his voice doesn't tremble, and his gaze doesn't falter. He wonders if Crowley would be proud of him. Death's face is motionless for a moment before it carves into a nasty grin. Farewell, then, sword-bearer, he says, and then he is gone. Aziraphale stands for a long while. After a time, he uncurls his fists, breathes out the air he's been holding. The shadow he casts is bigger than he is and some emotion ripples in him like a stone disturbing water. He stares into the blackness. Something unfurls in him like the flag of some army already defeated. For the first time in his existence, Aziraphale puts his hand to his mouth and starts sobbing. <laughs>